We have been going through a series, as you saw in that video there, called True and Better. And the idea is that we're looking at Old Testament passages, we're looking at Old Testament stories. And as we look at those Old Testament passages, we see that those stories in the Old Testament are not just stories in and of themselves. They're not just stories about a particular person. Um, While they are that, they're also something a little bit greater and that they're talking about Jesus. So as you're reading about Abraham and Isaac, um, just for a few examples as we've been discussing here the past few weeks, as you're reading about Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham with his decision to sacrifice Isaac, that's really a story about Jesus, where we see that God the Father was willing to actually make the sacrifice of Christ um, for us on our behalf on the cross. Or as you read the story of Moses, and how Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery, that's really a story about Jesus, because Jesus is the one who defeated Satan's sin and death and leads us out of our slavery and bondage to sin. Or last week, as we saw, the story of Boaz and Ruth, that that's not really just a story about Boaz and Ruth, but that's really a story about Jesus, where Boaz is willing to come and make the purchase and be the redeemer for Ruth. Jesus is the one that comes and purchases us as his own bride, the church, and redeems us and brings us back from um, having no, no, no husband. So we can see that these particular stories as we're going through are stories. They're true stories. They're real stories. They're small little stories. But all these small little stories in the Old Testament really connect up to this thing called was the meta-narrative, the big story. And this big story has always been from beginning, right there at Genesis all the way to the end, one big story about Jesus. And so today's not going to be any different. We're going to be looking at another story in the Old Testament, a very, very, very familiar one. Um, <clears throat> but before we do, I've got one little, one little thing I want to say, and then we're going to pray. So uh, about two months ago, I, like a prophet, declared that Duck Dynasty would not last as our savior in American evangelicalism as we were talking about the doctrine of the church and that the local church is the answer. And almost two months to the day, just wanted to say that my prophecy came true. And it is done, it looks like. Just wanted to point that out for everyone um, because sometimes that's fun. So anyway, I'm going to pray and then we are going to uh, jump into uh, the familiar story of, of David and I'll bring us up to speed and let us know how things are going and, uh, and where we are, and then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, jump in. So let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for uh, how we can come together as a church, and as we gather around your word, that this is not just <clears throat> story time at the library where someone reads us a story and then we all go home. Instead, it's God coming And being with his people through the power of the word and the spirit, teaching us, talking to us, and showing to us um, what he has done for us, that you have given us your son. I pray that as we read this morning in the Bible that we'll realize um, while there are applications, while there are things to do, the main thing that we need to hear is what you have done in Christ for us. I pray that that will be clear this morning. And that though uh, week in and week out we try to enhance and adorn this beautiful gospel story, that it wouldn't become routine, it wouldn't become something that we feel like we already understand, but instead uh, we would be so enamored with this gospel truth that we would want to go and live our lives differently because of it, and that we would want to change our mindset and realize that we have to really bank on what Christ has done for us to be able to have a right standing with God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So as I've said, uh, we've been going through the Old Testament. We've traced how God chose Abraham and to be the father of Israel, and then through his his sons and grandsons, there would be 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes would eventually go over to Egypt. And as they were in Egypt, um, they were put eventually in slavery. And Moses led them out of the promised land <clears throat> up to the cusp of the promised land. And he either spoke or, or struck the rock. I can't remember which one. It was one of the two. And it wasn't what God wanted. And then Joshua was the one that led them into the promised land and that they entered into what was known as the period of the judges where the judges oversaw. And that was where we were last week during the period of the judges where we saw that kind of precious excerpt of a story about Ruth and Boaz. And then the very last thing as we were reading in the book of Ruth, we saw that they had a son. And as they had a son, they named this particular son um, Obed and Obed was the father of Jesse. And then lastly, it tells us Jesse was the father of David. And so that's where we're going to go into now. In in Israel's history, they eventually leave the period of the judges. They tell God they want a king. And Saul is anointed as king. Doesn't turn out to be a very good king at all. But the very next king is going to be David. And so we're going to pick up in that little period right there where Saul is still king, and yet David is going to eventually be king. Uh, And we're going to look at a a very familiar story that all of you have probably heard, David and Goliath. And as we look at this particular story today, um, I'm assuming that since you're very familiar with it, um, that there's going to be a lot of repeat information. But what I'm hoping to do is let us see how this particular story of David and Goliath really, as I was talking about before, connects to the the meta-narrative, connects to the greater story, or uh, maybe to say it this way, how... The story of David is really about the story of Jesus. So that's, that's our goal today, and that's really been the goal of the entire series, to, when, you, when you see true and better, to see that Jesus is the truer and better David. Jesus is the truer and better Boaz or Moses or Abraham. So um, let's go into it. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17. Um, and as, we're, as you're flipping there, more than likely growing up, you've heard Old Testament stories be taught to you as you look at these particular characters that what you want to do here is dare to be a David. Dare to be a David so that you can slay the giants in your life. And really, that's probably the worst way to think about it. Um, What if the Old Testament isn't about us? What if the Old Testament isn't written about characters that we can just look at and try to mimic them? Instead, the Old Testament... Testament characters, as I've said already, are written as prefigures or foreshadows of capital S someone that's greater. So the Old Testament isn't really about us at all. It's about these particular people and how they in some way prefigure and foreshadow the coming Savior. That the Old Testament is mostly about the Messiah not just about these particular characters. And so we're going to look at David. Now, there's lots of ways that he prefigures or foreshadows. King David prefigures and foreshadows Christ. Just to name a couple, they're they're not in this particular story, but as you look at uh, some of the story of David, if you're familiar with it, as David shows mercy to Saul, who opposes him over and over, there's there's times where he has the opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. He shows him mercy, like Saul's in the cave, and David doesn't kill him. As, As David shows mercy to Saul and 
who opposes him, Jesus shows mercy to those who oppose him. As David's strength delivered his family and captives uh, free in, in 1 Samuel 30, Jesus also delivers, uh, with Jesus' strength delivers us out of our captivity to sin. As David, uh, when he becomes king, unites the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, under one large kingdom, he prefigures Christ as the one who uni- unites both Jews and Gentiles in a greater unity. So we can see that there's easier kind of obvious ways that David is prefigured by Christ. But the one that we're going to look at today uh, to see that King Jesus is the truer and better King David is going to be in 1 Samuel 17. Now, by now, as we've been doing this, you've had to start asking yourself, can't we just um, really take this this idea of these characters prefiguring Jesus to like an extreme and I can just start spiritualizing everything? Uh, So if, if... you know, so-and-so's left-handed and he doesn't want to be left-handed anymore, then we shouldn't want to be on the left anymore and be Democrats. Or like I can, I can start spiritualizing everything that you're doing. And I mean, there's obviously things that we can start saying, yes, you can spiritualize it all. So there's a balance to strike whenever we're going through any Old Testament. This is just for your own personal study as you're reading through the Old Testament, which I encourage you not just to read the New Testament in your daily Bible reading because you can understand it better, but to also, also read the, uh, the Old Testament. There's a good balance to strike as you're reading or as I'm trying to preach through this that as we're going through the story, I want to balance not trying to go to show you how it relates to Christ too quickly. In other words, I still want to dwell in the text. I still want to see the character. I still want to understand what's going on. I still want to highlight that this is a real person and draw out applications from this particular person, this particular life that he's living, and et cetera, et cetera. However, as we do that, we don't want to just end it there. there there's, a, there's a balance to strike between not doing that and just going and showing how it relates to Christ and a balance between doing that and then making sure that we show you that, Christ, that, that, that these stories are really all about Christ. So we notice the details, we notice the applications, and that way that we don't have what seems to be the, quote, same sermon every week, but also we always have to go to Christ and the gospel, and we want to preach the gospel every single week and show you how this particular di- part of the diamond, when we turn it, how it's about Jesus, and how this is about Jesus today, it obviously, is, is 1 Samuel 17, how... Christ has defeated the giant in your life, which is sin. So um, this is a rather large chapter, and I know you're thinking, Fudd, there's no way that you're going to do 58 verses. But we are. We really are. So let's go ahead and, and jump in at First Samuel 17, verse 1. I'll just read large sections, very familiar story, and we'll, we'll show you some things here. So, uh, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah, and a feast doming. We, I know we don't know where those places are. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. You can see Saul the king is there. The, he's there. So just notice that. And drew up a line of the battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and a valley between them. And there came from them, a, from the camp of the Philistines, a champion. This champion uh, in the Hebrew, I think, is pronounced ish. It's just a man between two when the commentator says that is a man who on the part of his own people undertook to determine the national quarrel by engaging in single combat with a chosen warrior in the hostile army and the other hostile army. So instead of everybody fighting, they would pick a champion and whoever won that, they, that, they won the whole thing. And so he's Goliath is the champion there. 
And it says, named Goliath of Gath, whose span was six cubits and a span. Uh, six, a cubit was like 16 inches, a span is five inches. And so it, commentators were ranging back and forth between, he was like eight and a half feet to nine and a half feet. But if, I thought this was kind of funny. If you look at your little footnote, it says that the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus say that he was four cubits, which changes everything. Instead of him being eight and a half to nine and a half feet, he's like five, six. And <laughs> I just think that that really changes the whole story. It doesn't seem quite so scary. But anyway, um, probably not four feet or, you know, five feet and a half, but more likely he was Shaq Diesel size. He was huge. And he was, <clears throat> he had a helmet of bronze. And you can just notice that he's large. Look, look at the description of everything after this. I mean, this is not, you know, my, my roommate in college at one point was 5'2", and he was just so small. But he was from Jersey, and he was always angry at everything. And so, like, uh, he was never, like, ne- no one ever, like, he was always mad, he, and no one ever, like, thought that he was very scary. So I just think that if, if Goliath was 5'3 was or 4, it wasn't very scary. Anyway, 5'5, five, five, he said he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of a coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor legs and a javelin bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and a shield bearer went before him. So he had, like, 25 pounds or so on, on the sides of him and he stood and shouted the ranks of Israel why have you come to draw why have you come out to draw up for battle am I not a Philistine are you not the servants of Saul choose a man for yourselves and let him come down if he's able to fight with me and kill me then um, we will be your servants but if I prevail against him and kill him then you shall be our servants and serve us and the Philistine said I defy the ranks of Israel this day give me a man that we may fight together when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So if he, he's got all this stuff on, and he's a little short guy, that's not very likely. So if he's got all this stuff on, he's got to be a pretty large man. And you can also see that he is pretty belligerent. I mean, he's just standing there pretty confident. Little small guy wouldn't be very confident in battle. He's got all this stuff on him. So what we want to see here is um, the, first, the first truth. And we're going to, as we're seeing these truths, I've written these in such a way that they're, they're dealing with the story in a way, but they're also dealing with the larger, greater narrative. So five truths regarding David and Jesus as our deliverer. The first one is, as Goliath was quite belligerent foe that is not going to be, be defeated naturally and easily. That's, that's the whole point that the writers want us to see. He's a big dude. He's got a lot of stuff, and it's going to be very difficult to beat him. All right? So is our sin to us. It's, it's very daunting. It, the Israelites, as they look on it, are rightly scared. They're not thinking, in the end, this is going to actually work out. In, in the story, the writer's warning us to really, really believe that this is not easy. This is going to be very hard, and you can't overcome this. And it's the same way that we're supposed to view our sin. As that long description of Goliath is, is written out to us, it's supposed to look at it and say, well, there's no way this guy's going to lose. There's no way. And as we look at the sin that so easily entangles us, we're supposed to, in our minds, before we understand the fullness of the gospel, think there's no way that we're going to be able to overcome the power of this sin in my life. So you can see he's, he's being rather belligerent. Now, in verse 12, it says, Now David <coughs> was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, um, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Talking about Jesse. 
The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest of all the sons, but the three eldest followed Saul over here to the battle. They were, they were fighters. But David went back and forth from Saul uh, to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So here's the scene. They're having this long kind of standoff. We're going to see here in just a second that's been 40 days. And David's job is kind of like uh, messenger boy. He runs back and forth. He brings, he see, sees his older brothers. He brings them some stuff. He runs back. He feeds the sheep at night. And then he's, he's kind of going back and forth. And he's the youngest of all of them. Um, and it says, where was it? Verse 16. Uh, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took a stand morning and evening. So for 40 days, this went on. And so there's a lot of belligerent, uh, a lot of belligerent talk from this guy. And the Israelites are rightly scared. And it goes on for 40 days. One of the commentators points out that this long standoff of 40 days is putting Israel in great jeopardy because uh, they had these agricultural needs at home. They, they weren't just hitting Sam's up for long, you know, big stacks of food and everything's going to be fine. They had all the men at this particular place in this valley and they needed them back home to do all the agricultural chores. So this wasn't going to just be some kind of um, loss for possibly losing men and land, but there was also an economic loss or at least impact that was going on where all these men weren't back home doing what they, what they should be doing. So there was the an economic impact as well. And it went on for 40 days. So it was, it was great loss that was potentially coming to the Israelites. The whole picture that's trying to be painted here for us is that this was really, really serious. Um, they got, the enemy was serious. The loss was possibly serious, etc., etc. Um, and then you can see here in verse 17. And Jesse said to David his son, take for your brother. So they're back, back at home Here's, you know, eighth, eighth son David, possibly seventh. There's some discrepancy between another book, but that doesn't matter. So here he is. Uh, he's supposed to take stuff to his, to his brothers. And Jesse is going to be sovereignly used by God here. In just a second, he's going to say, I want you to take these cheese pizzas to your, to your brothers, basically. He says, and David said to his son, take for your brothers an ephah and this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. So see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them so basically here's a bunch of uh mozzarella take this with you make sure everybody's fine check on your brothers and as they're there i want to make sure that they're okay so let me know that they're okay by getting something or, or talking with them or something and then come back and let me know that little conversation that the dad has with with david is going to be the sovereign work of god to bring an end to all this thing so the second thing i want you to see is that the lord is sovereign and good and acts he's always acting he is certainly acting to bring certain defeat which he promises to provide he's promising to provide now um this is what i mean the lord is good and acts so he didn't just leave this huge foe of sin before us and and say good luck with that i hope you can work it out um by the way you have to be perfect in order to come to heaven good luck. That's not what he did. Instead, he's sovereign and he's good. He acted. He entered into human history, sending his son, and as he acted, he will bring about certain defeat over Satan, sin, and death for us on our behalf. And so we can see it, that he's, he made that promise and he's going to keep it, just like he did in this particular story. Uh, if you flip over just one chapter to the left, you'll see how the, the promise was made in this story. And and act, I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, Samuel's looking for a king. He's realizing that it's not Saul. And 
He's walking around. He's looking for this potential king that's going to happen. And right here in this particular section, before we get to the David and Goliath section, God's going to make a promise that the king is going to be David. So you can see it right here. How The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, because he's not a good king, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to provide... Uh, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king from among his sons. There's the promise right there. I've provided a king. I have provided a king. So let's just meta-narrative up. God has provided a king in Christ Jesus. It's a precious promise. There's no getting around it. It's going to be there. It has been provided for us. Certain defeat has happened for those who trust in Christ. Uh, uh, defeat over their, their enemy. And here is, in this particular story, the promise of God. And, and he says, Samuel hears, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. Basically tells him to, to do it. Go to verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Um, come with me to the sacrifice. And he cons- consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them into the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab. Remember, Eliab's the very firstborn. We're going to deal with him in, a little, in just a second as we get into a little bit more of the story. Uh, he looked at Eliab, and Samuel, the prophet, looks at this firstborn son, and he goes, Surely the Lord's anointed is before, himself, before me right now. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected Eliab. He's not the one. All right? And this is our famous little verse that we always have about how we can wear jeans to church. For the Lord sees... For the Lord sees not as man sees. The man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I think the principle is true there, but that's just what we use. Then he says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then you can just keep reading, like it's son after son. The Lord made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made um, seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And the Samuel said to Jesse, Are the, all your sons here? And he said, there, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's out there keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for he will not sit down until he comes in here. Then he sent in, he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. He was, he was a good-looking fella. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. The Lord took the, I'm sorry, then Samuel took the horn of the oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And so we see Already, there's the promise right there made. This guy right here is going to be the king. No question about it. He's the king. So as we go right over here to verse 17, 17, one of the commentators says something um, very striking, and I thought, it was, I thought it was really good. There can't be any doubt in verse 17, 17, as he, Jesse looks over to David and said, hey, there's a big thing going on. I know this going on 40 days, etc. I know you've been the Lord's anointed. I want you to go up there and take these things to your brother. And the commentator writes, surely Jesse's thinking in the back of his mind. Maybe this is, maybe this is David's day. Maybe this is the time where he's going to step up and show that he's going to be the Lord's anointed. And so, um, back to my point right here. The Lord is sovereign and good and acts to bring about certain defeat. This sovereign act of the Lord is into the heart of Jesse to cause him to send his son to go be the savior of this particular time. It's, it's no coincidence. I mean, there's so many messianic truths kind of oozing out from that. So um, go on. Let's look at verse 18. Uh, bring in these cheeses. See if your brothers are well. Verse 19. And Saul, now Saul, <coughs> and they all, 
and they and all of the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out in the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper and the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. So he kind of left all the pizzas there. And he just ran up and found his brothers and he talked with them. Behold, the champion. So he's, he just wants to know what's going on, basically, is what's going on here. Uh, and, and the champion... Uh, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out and spoke of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, as he's been being so belligerent. And David heard him this particular time. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So verse 24 is just to remind us, in the same way that as we really, as we come to understand the vastness, the, the realness, and the daunting nature of our sin in our life, the right response as we look at a holy God is that we should have this verse 24. We should be very much afraid of the fact that we have willfully chosen to sin against a holy God, and he's perfectly holy and has all the righteousness, and, and he's just and can condemn us to eternal hell if he chooses, unless there's a savior made, unless, unless somebody comes and, and moves in our behalf, we should be just like these men, much afraid of what would, what would be our future. And it says, and the men of Israel have said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the kings will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. In other words, so Saul said, I need somebody to go kill this guy. Step right up anybody, whoever's willing. You can have my daughter and some money, and you can get to know me pretty well. I'm a nice guy. You can hang out with me in the king's house a little bit more. So that, that's kind of the, uh, this, this guy Saul. Uh, instead of fighting his own battles, this particular king Saul um, is farming out the, the, the battle. Like, somebody fight this battle for me. I don't want to be the mighty king to step up and do this. I need somebody else to do it. So we can just see how Saul is not uh, a good king. He's not the king that, that God has assigned for Israel. Now, um, verse 26, and here's the question. David's trying to figure out, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Reproach was coming on Israel. Everybody's thinking Israel's done for. They're all no good. Look at that, that 40 days this guy's been standing there screaming at them and saying all these things. And David doesn't like this. For who is this uncircumcised, uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy or shame uh, the armies of the living God? In other words, who does this guy think he is? We're Israel. He's standing here shaming the people of God. This is, this is just wrong. No one should ever do this to the people of God. We're the people of God. So he's, he's getting a little upset. And he's like, who's doing this? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So you'll, you'll get all the, you know, the spoils if you're, you're able to do it. Now, we see here Eliab, or Eliab, or whatever, the, young, the oldest brother speaks up. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's Anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with, whom ha ha and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David basically just says, Hey, it was just a question, bud. Just asking a question. Now, what's going on here is Eliab, as we saw in 16, was it 7? 16, 7? Um, 
16, 6 and 7, that Eliab was the one that was rejected. The oldest son was rejected. And so this doubt or these accusations that he's casting on David are, are just completely false. They're not true. He just still, I think, has anger in his heart that the youngest brother was chosen, not the oldest brother to be chosen. So we can just ignore Eliab completely. And so in 29, it says, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? In other words, hey, I just, I just asked a question, bud. That was it. It was just a question. Um, and he turned away from him and spoke to somebody else and spoke in the same way. And the people again answered as the words before. And then we hear, we get to kind of some, some of the meat of, of, of what's going on in 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's <clears throat> heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. So we see David saying, I'll step up. I'll fight this guy. It's no big deal. And then he's going to lay out his credentials. Now, these are, these are pretty interesting. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're just a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So you're a little guy. Look at that guy. What are you thinking? <laughs> you can't go out there and fight this guy. He's going, to, he's going to destroy you. And this is where David throws out his credentials. But David said to Saul, we want to make sure we, we uh, as we read this, we read it in the way that the writer wants us to read it. So it says, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear, we won't do it, I know you want to, and he took the lamb, and we want to say lions and tigers and bears are mine, but we're not. Um, but it says, Whenever there would be a lion or a bear, and he took, he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck down and delivered it out of his mouth. Literally took a sheep out of the mouth of a lion or a bear, is what he's saying. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord, don't miss this, because if we stop there, then we think the point is David can take care of business. David is so courageous. That's not the point. You got to not miss this next one. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So not the point is that David can take care of business. The actual point is God is faithful. God is the deliverer. David didn't do that. I mean, he's totally aware. The only way I did this is because God did it through me. I would have never, I mean, never been able to do this if God wasn't faithful to help me be able to do this. So the third thing I want you to see here is this. The Lord has been faithful and trustworthy in previous experiences for David. And in these previous experiences, so we can trust him to be faithful um, in major trials as well. Meaning this, um, as we've looked over the previous experiences of the Old Testament, we've seen the faithfulness of God. We even have the benefit, 2,000 years after the cross, to look and see the ultimate act of faithfulness for him to send his son and die for us on the cross. Therefore, we have um, complete trust in the faithfulness of his word delivered to us to say, the major trial that we all face, which is forgiveness of sin, I can trust God at his word, that he has been faithful to deliver me from this. If I trust in Christ, confess my sin, believe in Jesus, live my life for him, then this major trial in my life, my sin, is completely taken care of because of God taking care of it. Not, look at me, I can fight my way through it. I can defeat like lions and, and tigers my, my, my uh, sin. No, 
we have to look at verse 37 and say, the Lord is the one who delivers us from our sin. He says the paw of the lion and the bear. But we obviously can say, since the greater story is about Jesus, the Lord is the one who is faithful to deliver us. Verse 38. Um, Well, I have one little thing I want to say. We don't have a king like Saul who wasn't willing to fight um, the ultimate fight against sin like Saul was. But instead, we have the ultimate king, Jesus, that did step in like David and defeated our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. So another way that David is like King, is like king, da- or David is like king Jesus is that he was willing to step in and fight the fight, unlike Saul, who was not, um, farming out the fight. Verse 38, And Saul clothed David... And we've seen this, if, you've, if you have kids, you've seen the VeggieTales thing where, you know, the little P David, like, gets all the Saul stuff and it's, like, all falling off of him and he can't hold it. Um, but in verse 38, it says, Saul clothed David with his arm. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his arm and he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, basically, man, I ain't gonna wear all this stuff. It ain't gonna work. Uh, I'd rather just be slick and elusive. Look at that big giant. He's probably slow as molasses. I just, I need my speed so I can target myself, get myself around here. I'm gonna take care of him. I don't, get, get rid of all this stuff. It's too much for me. And David said, I can't go with all this, for I have not tested them. So David took them all off and he took his staff and his hand. So he got a stick and five smooth stones. He's got his sticks and stones and he's gonna go and he goes to the brook and he's gonna fight. Now, I've heard commentators at verse 40 when they get to, uh, the, the five smooth stones just go a little bit crazy. I've heard pr- pastors say he got five because he heard Goliath had four brothers. I don't know if that's true or not. I've never, ever heard that before. I've heard he got five where, uh, you know, he's, he believes in God, but he's also using his practical knowledge. You know, what if I miss? He could have just picked up one and said, God's the deliverer. I mean, he's faithful and trustworthy. I only need one. But he picks up five because he, he believes God, but he's also given us minds. We're supposed to be practical and just in case. You know, I don't know any about any of that kind of stuff. I think that the, the thing is he just picks up five. Maybe that's just what he always does. I don't think there's anything to read into that besides he just picks up five. That's it. And I don't think we need to go any more into it picks him up from the, from the brook. He puts him in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand. He's got his sticks and stones. He's ready to go break some bones. Um, Matthew Henry says, uh, by this, by just throwing off all of Saul's junk and just taking basically a sling and stone, Matthew Henry says, by this it appeared that his confidence was purely in the power of God and not in any sufficiency of his own. I mean, he's going to face a nine-foot giant with a rock. I mean, think about that. This guy's got all these swords and stuff, and he throws off all that stuff. He's like, I got a stick, and I got a rock. That's all I'm taking. So Matthew Henry wants us to make sure we understand. By this, it appeared that David's confidence was purely in the power of God and not in any sufficiency of his own, and that, not, and that now at length he who put into his heart to fight the Philistine put into his head with what weapons to do it. He knew that this is what he needed. He's completely trusting God here. Now, we're walking into this particular battle. We need to stop here and just realize, on all outward appearances, David has no chance. The writer wants us to think this. He has no chance of winning. I mean, we know, I know you know the rest, but we need to get to this point to look at it and say, from all outward appearances, as he's walking up with a staff and some stones, and Goliath, I mean, like, right off the bat starts saying, oh, you brought a stick. What am I, a dog? You're going to beat me with your little stick, little man? Like he immediately starts making fun of him. What we're supposed to think here is that David has no 
chance of winning. The reason why is this. Because this is exactly the story in the New Testament. It gets to a point where our hero, King Jesus, as we get to it, we think to ourselves, it's over. Jesus has no chance anymore. It's completely over. As we read Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 15, 37, where it says, And Jesus, he's on the cross, uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Or it says it in Mark 20, 27, 50, where Jesus cried out in a loud voice and then yielded up his spirit. At that particular moment, as all his disciples followed him around for three years, thought that, that he's going to take the victory, everything's his, he, that he gets beaten up, he gets taken to the cross. All of a sudden, he's there, it, he's there for just six hours, he screams, he dies, and then you've got to just imagine that particular moment, we're not at the resurrection, that particular moment, from all outward appearances, everybody thinks, well, he has no chance of winning. It's over. Everything's done. And as David's walking up, he has literally no chance of winning. He was dead. I mean, Jesus was dead. Dead. But he didn't stay dead. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. This is exactly the way we're supposed to feel as we see David walking into. And as David does defeat the giant, it's the same as Christ defeating Satan, sin, and death and coming up from the grave and showing that nothing holds him down. He is the ultimate king. So here we see in verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near David with the shield bearer in front of him. And the Philistine looked and saw David. He disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to but me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So you can see he, um, this guy, Goliath, immediately starts um, down-talking David and down-talking the Lord as well. That's always a bad idea, by the way. Um, and, and here we see in verse 45, this is, this is in verse 45 and for, verse 47, um, these particular three verses are something that not too many of us get the opportunity to do, I don't think, very often, which is where we get to talk junk for God. Um, and this is what David does, and he, he, he lays it down pretty well. This is pretty awesome. And David said to the Philistines, you come at me, bro, basically. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of the hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will strike you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and then after I strike you down, I'm going to cut your head off. And then he says, And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all that... Don't miss this little phrase right here. This is so... Um, expansive of, of the way evangelism is going to happen in the New Testament, that all of the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. I mean, that's a major tra trash talking, which I really like. Um, it's pretty awesome. I, I wish that we could get that kind of stuff. It's pretty epic trash talk. But here we see in that particular section is this. Verse, this is our fourth note, truth, fourth truth. That there is a deep confidence that David has. And there's a deep confidence that we can have as followers of Christ. That he is God. That he is strong. And that he is alone able to defeat our foe. In other words, with the same um, confidence that David trash talks Goliath. We can do the same thing whenever it comes to Satan. When he's trying to um, 
Whenever those who are in Christ know that Christ has paid the penalty, know that our sin is forgiven, and then he creeps in, the, the enemy, and he, he tries to make us feel bad, or he tells us that you're not worthy. He tells us you can't believe you did that sin again. Aren't you supposed to love Jesus? Aren't you supposed to be him? How can you keep doing that? You're just garbage. You're just nothing. And we start believing it with the same confidence that David looks at him and says, I'm going to cut your head off, bro. Like, we can just look at him and say, you're nothing. You're nothing. Look, look back at the cross 2,000 years ago where you were done. He's already done all the work for me. And not only that, his name's going to be known in the whole world, not yours. And he's the one that saves, not you. And he's done it for me. You've got nothing. You've got nothing. I don't believe your lies. I don't believe you're in, you're, you're trash talk. You're the enemy. And you can confidently talk back to him. Now, so the point that we need to realize is that all that is because God is our source of strength. God is our source who provided all that, not us. So as David does this, he realizes that there's a deep confidence that we can have as followers of Christ in God, that he is the one that's strong, not us, that he is alone, alone the one that's going to defeat our foe or has defeated the foe. So we see in verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came, drew, came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly. I love it. He just took off. He's like, confidence in God. I'm going to do it. I'm running after you. Toward the battle line. And David put the hand in his bag and um, took out a, a stone and slung it first one and struck the Philistine right in his forehead. And you're thinking, I mean, seriously, first one? Well, let me just read something to you about these guys. They were, they were pretty awesome. In Judges 20, now we're talking about the Benjamites here, but... Um, David was of the tribe of Israel, and I think David was just as capable of these. In Judges chapter 20, it says that there were uh, 700 chosen men. They were all left-handed for some reason. And every one of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss it. That's pretty, pretty accurate. So it's not just like random here. These, are, these Israelites, apparently, were, they were good with slinging stones. Um, and David, no different. He, t- he reaches in. He takes the, the stone. He struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. Like, it, he went in there pretty good. He has all this junk, but apparently this little part was open, and that was his downfall. Hits him in the forehead. He falls right down onto his face on the ground. David seizes this particular moment. Verse 50 in the children's books. Verse 51, not so much in the children's books. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Verse 51, not so much in the kids books then david ran stood over the philistine took his sword out drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it and when the philistines saw that their champion was dead they fled that part's laid out of the kids books for some reason i don't know i think it's pretty awesome um because it shows that i mean he took care of business and then you can just see here in verse 52 the men of israel and judah they were invigorated with a shout they pursued the philistines they went after him um, david in verse 54 took the head of the philistine and brought it to jerusalem and it, it was kind of weird that he did that but the commentators even wrote that's really weird that david did that um but he did he, he kept the uh the head for some reason but basically, just as a, a trophy to all of Israel, it says, David takes care of business. And all of you who oppose Israel, remember this guy? I mean, if I took down Shaq Diesel, I can take down you. And Shaq's actually smaller than this guy. Um, but what I want to do is fast forward into 18 just a little bit and kind of end on this, on this fifth point. Because I think that it's, it's really important for us to not miss this last little part. And how this little part of the meta narrative really serves for us as, as a greater picture of what we should be doing. So you can see... And 18, verse 6, they were coming home where David had returned from striking down the Philistine and all the women came out of their cities 
of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and sounds of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, David and his tens of thousands. Now, that made Saul very angry in verse 8. But the whole point is that Israel came out and sang praises to their king, more so to David than Saul, but they're singing praises to their king. That's what we see. Um, and so the fifth thing I want you to see is as a- Israel praised David or even Saul for his victory, the church, as we look at the greater story, the church must praise Jesus for his victory over our sin. In the same way that Israel says, we're going to sing the praises of our king that defeated our enemy. So we must, and this is the whole point of why we come together as a church every single week and sing these songs about Jesus' victory over our sin, who we were before Christ, and who we are now in Christ. And we sing the victory of Jesus. We don't sing songs about, oh, I'm so smart, and ask Jesus in my heart. Look at me, I'm brilliant. That's not what we do. We say, I was a sinner, or I was bankrupt, or whatever. Jesus is forever. Jesus is the king. He's the one that saved me. All praise be to Christ. That's why we sing these songs. Because just like the impulse of the Israelites to know, just know, I'm supposed to sing glory to my king for what he has done for me by delivering me. It's, it's intuitively in us that we're supposed to do the same thing, that we're supposed to sing praises to our king. So how do we read this? We're, we don't dare to be a David in the story. We're not David. We're Israel, shaking, our boots on the, shaking in our boots on the side. We're Eliab, mad because we're not in charge. We're Saul, having no idea what to do and, and waiting on our Savior King to be the one to come and rescue us. Goliath is the great giant of sin in our life needing to be slain. And Jesus is the truer and better David that doesn't just kill some person or giant that's persecuting the army, but he kills the sin in our life. Now we need to remember, lastly, what is this? David is just a man. This story, though it's about David, is about Jesus, and David is just a man. David eventually came to a point later in his life where he quit fighting his wars. And he's, while his armies are out, he has an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And to cover that up, he kills a man named Uriah. And as he kills this man named Uriah, he <clears throat> goes for a long period of time unrepentant and his heart gets hard until Nathan the prophet comes and tells him a story. And then he repents in Psalm 51. But even after he repents, the rest of his family life, if you know the story, wasn't that great. He was just a man. And in the end, even King David lived somewhat of a disappointing life. And he was known as a man after God's own heart. So our hope is not in David, but our hope is in Jesus, who will not ever forsake us. He will not ever let us down. He will not sin against us. He covers our sin. He doesn't cover his sin because he has no sin. He's always there. He's perfect. He's our Christ, and he's our Savior. So Christ is the one that we look to. So as we go now into this time of response, we are going to look to Christ and we're going to sing our praises to Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, then I would just ask as you've read, read and heard this Old Testament story that you would see it's part of the larger story, which is that you have this giant sin in your life and you have no way to defeat it and you need the Savior King Jesus to come defeat it for you by believing in Christ's work on the cross 
confessing your sin and repenting of your sin and trusting in him, you will be forgiven of your sin forever. You will be a child of his. And like these women stand and sing the praises of their king, we all corporately will stand and sing the praises of our king. You can be forgiven of your sin forever. And if you don't know Christ, I invite you to do that this morning. Trust in him. And those that do, those that have been forgiven, those that have experienced this good news of having the giant of your sin killed, well, let's be like Israel here. And let's sing out to Christ for what he's done and give him all the glory for saving us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you that every page in the Bible is about Jesus. That these aren't moralistic stories for us to get the moral and do better. But instead, they're about Christ and what he's done. I pray that as we go into the next couple days in the Christmas season, that as we live in light of the fact that Christ came and defeated Satan, sin, and death for us, that we will put all of our trust and all of our hope in him and that this season would be marked by a recognition in our minds that Christ has done everything for us and that we would live in light of this one fact. Jesus rose from the dead. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.